0: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of The Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come to thedispatch.com to get all the good stuff and, um, uh, and be part of this growing, wonderful thing that we are trying to do. Um, so where to begin? I uh, just finished the G-file. It's a two-parter. Uh, first part and second part are completely unrelated to each other. Well, I mean, there's some tenuous dangling participle of the sinew between the first part and the second part, but they're just basically two separate G file things. I am going to try and start doing more and more of that. You know, the original G file started as a blog in late 98, I want to say, and it used to be just sort of small items, bloggy style. And then it veered into long ranty essay type things and then back to bloggy style. And I feel like I've been going too long on the essay side of it. Um, Maybe that's because the times lent to it. And I have to say, I've been telling Steve, we've been talking about this, you know, part of the business model of the dispatch is we don't chase clicks, right? Traffic, I mean, traffic matters, but traffic matters as an indicator of engagement. An indicator of who we might be able to convince to subscribe to our newsletters and become a member of our community and come to our events and participate in our other things and all that. But unlike most of the websites that you go to, the good ones and the bad ones, um, because we don't run ads, uh, we don't really care about traffic the way, you know, a responsible and an irresponsible business would, right? And and as I've Probably explained a million times. Part of that argument is part of the rationale for that is that we think that that you know one let us put it this way. Part of it is philosophical, and part of it is aesthetic, um, and there's overlap between the two. Um, the philosophical is is we think the constant race for clicks and hits and ratings and all of these things is screwing up America, and it's screwing up journalism. And it's screwing up our brains. We're all like monkeys hitting on the bar trying to get another cocaine pellet in some study. And, you know, Twitter makes it worse and social media makes it worse. And we kind of believe that um, it's better to slow down, not write stuff that is geared just to get the click. Um, You know, I get get notifications from all sorts of right-wing websites that have these really provocative headlines And, you know, we should note that headlines were, had a high quotient of BS long before the invention of the personal computer and mind the internet. But I don't think any serious observer would say it hasn't gotten worse. But I get these things. I won't name the sites. Either you see them and know what I'm talking about or you don't. Um, But you get these headlines that are really grabby. You are like, oh my God, did Biden really say that? Or is Trump really doing that? And then you open it up and he's not. And it's manipulative, but they get you know they get your impression they they get your hits and your clicks and whatnot, and they get to make money off of that from ad rates and whatnot and marketing and all of that kind of stuff and we don't want to do any of that because we don't like it um and we think the best way to hold on to readers is to is to respect their time by not clogging up the user experience with a bunch of craziness. And that's the, that's part of the aesthetic part of it, right? You know, you get the email, there are no embedded ads, there's no flashing things, there's no autoplay video or anything like that. And, you know, Steve philosophically is much more committed than I am to this idea that the clickbait advertising model, traffic model is inherently corrupting. And while I agree with him, you know, I also have some confidence in in our ability to fend off you know, the, the corruption of filthy lucre from advertisers and sponsors and whatnot, and still be honest. Um, But so I agree with him on that. It's just that that's where his real passion lies in this philosophy, and where I'm more passionate is that I just I hate the user experience of being bombarded with stuff I don't want to see, not knowing how to close some window, some you know, all the autoplay video crap. Um, if you watch Game of Thrones, there's a great scene, I think at the end of season, maybe at the beginning of season three or the end of season two. Anyway, it's where Reek, um, or he's not Reek then, he's still Theon Greyjoy is controlling, the, um, uh, is controlling Winterfell, but they're surrounded by soldiers and they're blowing and it's sort of classic siege mentality, psychological warfare. The soldiers surrounding the place are just blowing horns day and night driving them crazy. And at one point, uh, Theon Greyjoy is giving this impassioned sort of St. Crispin's day speech. And then he just loses it and says, and the man who kills the blankety blank with that horn will be a hero for the ages or whatever. And that's how I feel a lot of the time when I'm trying to read something and I get super distracted by it. Um, but sorry, I didn't mean, I didn't plan on opening with a, a pitch about, um, all this. And now I can't even remember how I got started on it. Um, but anyway, um, you know, anyway, so we don't really care about, you know, traffic and all these kinds of things. We, we, we care about the product and membership and it's just a different model. And so far it's working out really well for us. And, um, so where was I? I, I, I honestly, maybe it'll come up to me. Um, and I'll, um, um, suddenly have another digression where I remember how I got started on this, but let me switch gears. So I wrote the G file today. Maybe this will help remind me. And, um, I, uh, the wrote the first part on, Oh, that's how, see, I knew I would get to it. So yeah, blogginess. I've been having this conversation with Steve for a while about how, even though we don't really like, we really don't care about, um, traffic and our model doesn't need people to keep returning to the site all day. Cause we don't, monetize that. I mean, we like, we, we think part of the benefit of people coming back is they get to comment in non-crazy discussions in the comments sections and people come back for that. But I've been more and more thinking that we should have some kind of bloggy thing, um, at the dispatch. And in part, because I kind of have this phantom limb feeling, you know, I, I invented the corner, and I, I don't know, two thousand three, two thousand five, something like that. And um, you know, and, and I'm not trying to steal credit from Rich. I proposed it. Rich liked the idea. We implemented it together, but it was sort of my baby. And you know, and part of the idea of the corner, I mean, the fundamental idea of the corner, which actually ties into what I talked about last week and what I wrote about last week, was to demonstrate to people um, that there's a lot more heterogeneity and intellectual diversity on the right than the common stereotypes and caricatures apply and we would get into the big conversations and disagreements um i always used to say it was supposed to be like what people imagine faculty lounges are like where smart people have funny interesting witty algonquin roundtable kind of conversations about whatnot um I know for a fact from lots of friends in academia, that's not actually what faculty lounges are like, but um, we kind of wanted to make it the water cooler of the right. And we get into big arguments and disagreements about all sorts of things. You know, We had arguments about nationalism versus patriotism back then. We had arguments about evolutionary psychology. We had arguments about all sorts of things. But if you read it in good faith, you came away from this sense that it was, you don't have to believe in a straight party line to be a conservative, that there are, there are robust arguments and disagreements in good faith that stem from shared principles, um, about what it means to be a conservative, what conservatives should do, what policies they should promote, what political strategies they should promote. And anyway, I don't want to repeat the argument I made last week, but I think one of the really terrible, terrible things that we get from populist politics is this homogenization of, of the conservative product, as it were, where everybody has to be on the same page, sing from the same hymnal. It's popular front politics, um, voices that dissent from whatever the current grievancy popular in you know, a party line on the right are these days. They're sort of either silenced or read out. And I'm not talking about censorship or anything like that. I'm just talking about the sociology of it and the impact that it has on the lay viewer or lay reader who um makes the reasonable assumption that if everything that they see on Fox News or everything they hear on talk radio or everything they read on the on the, the usual suspect right-wing sites um all reads like it was basically written from the same, you know, talking points coming out of, you know, right-wing HQ or like maybe the C and C pack now stands for common turn they'll make the reasonable conclusion that, you know, this is what all of them believe because they don't see anything else. And anyway, so that was sort of the idea of the corner. And I kind of tied into last week and I thought I'd make that point, but I had this phantom pain, you know, for almost 20 years, I blogged constantly, you know, I, on a normal week, not counting books, right. I probably wrote five or 6,000 words. And I often have this feeling like, when there are little things that come up that I see on TV or that I read in the paper, um, that I would love to just cram out 600 words or 300 words, um, on it that don't really have the shelf life to stay in, um, to to hang around, uh, for the G file and they're not quite right for a column. And I got no place to put that stuff. And at the same time, you know, you don't want to give in to this. Oh, you got to chase the news cycle. And respond to every dumb tweet or every dumb comment out there, and I think that's something I could show restraint on, but anyway, I think more and more that we might want to have something like that, and I suspect that David French, who wasn't on the corner as long as I was, but he was once he joined was really proficient, has a similar cravings sometimes, and I think we could get a good kind of you know sort of like a public slack channel thing going that would be good for fostering community, and maybe we'd have it only for viewable only for members of the community or not. I don't know. But anyway, it's an idea. If people think it's a bad idea, please let me know, but also let me know why. (laughs) Um, and if you think it's a good idea, uh, please let me know and let me know why. Anyway, that said, um, back to the G file. So the first half of the G file, uh, uh, true story. I was in the supermarket, uh, last night after walking the dogs, I left the dogs in the car and I was, I thought I would listen to the episode of the bulwark where my friends, Tim Miller and, and Charlie Sykes had a glodathon. I mean, it was a full, let's play bunch of songs. Hey, hey, bye-bye, you know, that kind of stuff, um, throughout it. And they were really having a grand time dunking on people. I think dunking on some people unfairly. I think Charlie's basically wrong about most of national review. Um, or at least he's, he's on the side of slightly unfair to most of national review. I mean, if he wants to dunk on uh, Victor Davis Hanson, I, I will not get in his way. But um, I, I think painting with a broad brush about "quote unquote" National Review when you might actually have complaints about Conrad Black, but not Ramesh Panuru is kind of unfair. And I'll just plead totally guilty to the fact that I am still, I still consider myself part of that family. And you know, as much as happy as I am with the dispatch and how much I really wanted to thrive. Um, I still get knee-jerk defensive when people go after it. But anyway, I don't blame Charlie Sykes and Tim Miller for dancing in the end zone. I get it. Um, You know, Charlie lost a radio show over Donald Trump. You know, Tim Miller basically left the Republican Party. Um, I don't agree with every way, every jot and tittle about how they've handled the Trump years, and I know they don't agree with everything. I've done it, but I, you know, I still like them. Um, But I was listening to them gloat, And then I read Kevin, and I read earlier in the day, Kevin Williamson's, um, really great, you know, witless ape rides a helicopter piece, um, where he really did spike the football in the end zone and then, um, uh, drove it through the inner core of the planet. Um, and it dawned on me that I hadn't done that. And, um, if you had told me two years ago, a year ago, maybe even six months ago that these events were going to play out as they were, and I wouldn't spike the football, um, I would have said you're crazy because that's just great column fodder. Um, but I haven't done it. Now, I should note, as I, as I write today, there are lots of people who tell me that all I'm doing is gloating. And I, I, you know, I, I think people overdo this psychoanalysis of people thing. But that tells me more about their state of mind than mine because I know, I'm you know, I, I, I'm pretty knowledgeable about my own inner states. I'm not saying I have perfect knowledge of my own motivations and everything, um, but I'm more expert on it than just about, well, everybody else on the planet. And I know I haven't written anything where I was just going full tilt gloaty. And um and I've got so many receipts. You know, like warehouse at the end of Indiana Jones. Um, full of receipts about what people have done, what people have said, what people have said about me, the money that people have cost me, the friends that people have cost me, the slanders and all these kinds of things. And there's a part of me that would love to do like the Jim Carrey in um, Pet Detective, where he solves the case and then he does, can you feel that? Um, and point out that my predictions that character is destiny have been proven to be absolutely accurate. Um, but again, I haven't done that. I mean, I'm I'm doing it a little bit now. I agree. That's just sort of the sly meta sugar that makes the medicine go down here. But um I hadn't done it full full throatedly, and I didn't really do it today, although again, I imply that I have every right to um gloat. Um and it was interesting to me that I hadn't done it. It was sort of like this epiphany at the supermarket. And part of it was like, oh no, I've missed my shot. It just feels gratuitous and old now. But it dawned on me that that really wasn't it. Um, the main reason I didn't, I didn't spike the football at any point until now was um, that first of all, it was too soon to spike the football because Donald Trump, until January 6th, because Donald Trump was still trying to steal an election. And vast numbers of people who I think have been proven utterly wrong in their Trumpism uh, were supporting it. So, you know, you can't, can't do it then. And then you have January 6th, and then there are, you know, the cop beaten to death, there are other people who are injured, five people dead and all, something like that. Um, and the sheer magnitude of the outrage and the horror of all that thing kept unfolding. And I was like, this is an inappropriate time to get all dunky. And then there's this, the real problem, which is that you know, as as I, as I write in the G file, um, you know, if you've got some great football rivalry with another team and you beat them and, um, and they've talked so much smack for so long about you, you kind of feel this right to gloat in the end zone, but they kind of rob you of that when they claim, that the scoreboard is fake news, that they didn't really lose. The game was rigged. The refs were in on it. You know, they're the deep state or something like that. And in fact, and then they automatically pretend that they're the victims because uh, you're criticizing them for not acknowledging that they lost, fair and square, um, for not accepting their role in uh, supporting or apologizing for inviting the fans to come down and wreck the stadium to prevent the game from ending. Um, and it's a real problem. You know, it's, it's in, in past elections, when one party loses after making a big bet on how to win an election and they get proven wrong, they do, they have some introspection, you know I mean? The famous examples in 2012 with the autopsy, which <laughs> nobody listened to, uh, but, There's also a long history, which for complicated reasons, I actually know quite a bit about um, in the Democratic Party, because my first boss when I came to Washington was this guy, Ben Wattenberg, who was, you know, he liked to, in his bio, he liked to boast that he was Ronald Reagan's favorite Democrat. And that was a slight embellishment of the actual code, but close enough. He was a sort of a proud neoconservative Scoop Jackson Democrat. And he um had been part of the movement in the Democratic Party since the late 60s, where, you know, in the late 60s, he was a speechwriter for LBJ. Ben was very much a, sort of an LBJ liberal on things like Social Security and Medicare, and he never changed on any of that stuff. But um he was like Scoop Jackson, um, who, you know, Scoop Jackson was a big pro-labor Democrat and uh, and and um largely forgotten now, but he was one of those Democrats that people like George Will really admired because Like Ben, he was a raging anti-communist and it is an amazing thing about how, um, with very few exceptions, I mean, maybe someone like Hitchens, but you know, there's something about being a raging anti-communist that prevents you from being too left wing on the other stuff. Um, and so yeah, Ben was sort of a mainstream LBJ liberal on, on the welfare state and that kind of stuff for A long time, but his anti communism was kind of like one of those uh stakes you put in the ground to tether your dog. I'd never use them, but you know what I'm talking about that that sort of changed the dog to the ground and and limits the range of motion that he, that he could have. And anyway, he was part of what was called the Coalition for a Democratic Majority, and I believe the original members of it um, well, there's this guy Irv Duggan who nobody remembers, but it's kind of a big deal in his time. Uh, but, uh, Richard Pearl was part of it. Uh, Gene Kirkpatrick, I'm fairly sure was part of it. Uh, Bill Bennett may have been briefly part of it. Um, and these were, a lot of these guys were the second wave of neoconservatives. And I know I belabor this point. It's, it's one of these issues that I'm passionate about and, as well as literally dozens of others. Um, but the first wave of neoconservatives really weren't all that much about foreign policy. They were about domestic policy. Um, they're all anti-communists, but that's a different part of it. Um, but the second wave, people like Norman Pedoritz and, and Gene Kirkpatrick and Bill Bennett, and Richard Pearl, most of them were sort of, uh, hawkish Democrats. And they came over to the Republican side because the Democratic Party had spiraled out and gone so left-wing, particularly after the 1972 election and the McGovern reforms in the party and all of that. And so Ben was part of this movement to try to bring the Democratic Party back to the center. And the CDM was basically the the seed that led to the Democratic Leadership Council. And the Democratic Leadership Council was part of this kind of process that Bill Clinton was a part of. Um, you know, you can say what you will about Bill Clinton. He really did understand American politics quite well, and he understood that whatever was in his heart his, his heart of hearts that actually getting elected as a Mondale Democrat or as a Mago- never mind a McGovern Democrat to the presidency was almost impossible. Remember Bill Clinton was the first president to hold the presidency for two terms first democratic president to hold it for two terms since i believe f d r and um. And he campaigned as a different kind of Democrat, talked about welfare being a a, a handout, not being I mean a hand up, not a handout. Um, you know he did all you know he 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 called for he did the sister soldier stuff, whatever, and I guess they talked about some of this last week. anyway, he was part of you know the DLC was part of this movement of introspection about why they kept losing elections. and so you would just my point is you would think after 2020 after Donald Trump being the first president since Herbert Hoover to lose the presidency after one term as well as the House and the Senate, that Republicans would engage in some introspection, and that conservatives in particular would be leading that conversation and instead, all we hear is this you know I'm not, I don't mean from everybody and I get to the people who this doesn't include in a second, but from you know from Bill Bennett, from the primetime guys at Fox from Uh the Jesse Waters crowd, Mark Levin, Rush Limbaugh. um, They go straight to victimization. And you know, and some of them go straight to claims that it is offensive to talk about how Trump did anything impeachable, that Trump did anything wrong, that Trump even lost for some of these people is considered to be, you know, an offensive, ununifying statement. And it's kind of amazing how quickly being bitter and victimized and disgruntled from the 2020 election um, has sort of mapped itself over vast swaths of the right as a kind of identity politics. You know, you're not supposed to use certain offensive words around racial minorities or around Jews or whatever. And all of a sudden, to listen to some of these people, you're not allowed to talk about why Trump should be impeached because it's offensive. It's divisive. It's triggering. I mean, listen to Lindsey Graham. You would think that, you know, people are born wearing MAGA hats and that it is somehow akin to racism to just simply offer facts about the state of things, including the fact that Trump cost the elections in both the Senate elections, basically in both Arizona and in, um, uh in in Georgia. You know, it's funny, I was talking to a somebody from from Arizona the other day who's deep into politics stuff, and he was telling me, you know, look, do I think that um that uh every Arizona Republican loved John McCain? Absolutely not. Um far from it. Uh but you read, you know, Cindy McCain's letter where she points out that the last two Republicans to win statewide were John McCain and Doug Ducey. Um, And you note that Donald Trump just dumped on, you know, a dead war hero, you know, and he was like, do I believe there are, I don't know, 10, 15,000 voters? in Arizona, Republican, gettable Republican voters who considered that to be just a bridge too far and just stayed home or didn't vote or voted for um, Biden. Sure. That seems utterly plausible. And, you know, Trump lost Arizona by 11,000 votes. Um, Um, And you would just think, you know, and that's one of the, and I think Ramesh made this point recently, the siege of January 6th has completely erased for some people the need or the desire to even have just a frank forget an official autopsy we're never going to get that with you know the the ronna mcdaniel hack who's going to be running the continue to run the gop which i just think is such a sign of unseriousness it boggles my mind Um, we're never going to get like a serious autopsy about why we lost the election because it will be a foregone conclusion that you are not allowed to place any blame on Donald Trump. But that's a conversation that you kind of need to have. You need an after action report where you look squarely at the facts and you're asking yourself why this happened. And we haven't had that because instead big chunks of the right have just segued into straight, you know, victimology BS. So anyway, that was sort of the first half of it. The second half of the G file was about the filibuster and this you know this idea, which comes back like a herpes flare-up, whenever Democrats get the idea that the filibuster is stopping them from, you know, reaching Brigadoon, um, that the filibuster is racist. And I don't want to get deep in the weeds all this, but I did say in the G file that I might talk about one aspect of it. I made make, look the filibuster is not racist. Was it used by racists, uh, particularly people like Strom Thurmond in 1957? Sure, absolutely. But it existed prior to Strom Thurmond. It existed prior to John Calhoun, which a lot of people want to say is the originator of the filibuster. It in mm-hmm. fact, originated as some sort of weird parliamentary um, goof precipitated by Aaron Burr. Um anyway, you can read about the G, that in the G file. My point is is that um I make this I, I made this point that you can't argue that let me let's put it this way. Let's say, for the sake of argument, the filibuster was invented by segregationists to protect Jim Crow, or invented by slaveholders to protect slavery. Let's just say the hard, most extreme version of this stuff were true. Sort of like let's pretend if the most extreme version of that nonsense—that slave patrols um, were the were the, the the foundation of policing in America, which is not true. Um, Uh, let's just assume that's true, you know, so let's say that, you know, police didn't exist in America, anywhere in America and would not have existed anywhere in America were it not for slave patrols forming little militias to hunt down fugitive slaves. And so therefore the roots of policing in America are 100% rooted in white supremacy and, and racism. Does that really mean that like the police department today in 2021 in Kenosha, Wisconsin is racist? You know, is the fruit of the poison tree so toxic that two centuries later you can't have policing because policing was invented by racists, which again, it wasn't, you know, I mean, they had police in ancient Rome, uh, you know, racism didn't really enter into it. Uh, had police departments in Britain going back a few centuries, it wasn't about racism. But, you know, and so the same point applies to the filibuster. It wasn't founded to protect racism. It's not inherently a racist thing. But even if it were, does that mean the Democrats were racist last summer when they threatened to use the filibuster to block uh, Tim Scott's police reform bill? You know, this black senator wanted to do something, had a good bill on police reform and the Democrats killed it by threatening to filibuster it and or almost, I, I can't remember the exact John Tittle, but they definitely threatened to filibuster it. Does that make all the Democrats racist? Of course not. And so anyway, to make this point, one of the points I made, which I've talked about here before, was that, you know, one of the fascinating things about the minimum wage in America is that it really took fire in the progressive era as a racist idea, as a racist and eugenic idea. The argument was that, um, primarily aimed originally at, 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 at Asians, right? And I'm, I'm just using the phrase coolie because that's what they were called at the time. It's an offensive term, but, um, there's this famous line from EA Ross that I quote, and I've quoted it a million times before, because I've talked about this a million times before, where he says, you know, the, the coolie can outwork the white man, um, but he can underlive him. The point being that since their quality of life and their standard of living was so low, they could afford to make much less money than decent, hardworking Teutonic white workers. Um, and so if you created a minimum wage, a minimum wage that was set at a good, decent, all American white man's wage, no rational employer would ever employ non-whites. And this applied to blacks too, for some of these progressive economists. Um, it had, you know, it, the whole idea was to have a eugenic um, or a dis, you know, you now a eugenic effect. I was going to say dysgenic, that's a different thing. Um, and, uh, and it was justified on those grounds. And, um, that doesn't mean that Bernie Sanders is a racist today because he's in favor of raising the minimum wage. And I will argue, and this is the thing I said, I would talk about here. So I'll just do it real quick. I think you can make a case that, you know, I mean, again, no racist intent to the minimum wage. But I think you can make a perfectly, you know, plausible, I mean, you'd have to get deep into the data to um, really make the case. But I think just as a matter of generalization, there are obviously some deleterious um, consequences along racial lines to a high minimum wage. Because, I mean... First of all the the real minimum wage is zero, right? I know it's a it's a right-wing talking point that people think is a mic drop thing, but it happens to be true. And when you hire somebody with no experience and um and no track record and no no specific skills, um you're taking a gamble on them. And you're actually doing them a favor. This is why I you know, I often say this is that, you know, in middle in medieval times, people would pay skilled craftsmen to take their children as apprentices because they understood that what the, what the craftsmen were going to teach their kids was more valuable than a wage. And, you know, so when McDonald's hires some kid with, with only a high school diploma or not even a high school diploma, with no job skills, no no um, work experience whatsoever, and trains them up for a job, they're doing that kid a huge favor. And it would be great if they could pay them fifteen dollars an hour in Mobile, Alabama, where the median wage is apparently fifteen dollars an hour. Um, but if you tell them that they're going to have to hire, you know, unskilled workers who require a lot of input and a lot of effort to train up for that kind of money, they're going to say, okay, well, we're going to, we're not going to do that. We're going to get, you know, um, iPads and robots Um, or we're going to hire people with work experience and you're just going to freeze people out of the market. And again, this is why you got to get into the data because I think it's, it affects poor, low education whites too. But my hunch is, is that in at least a lot of communities, the disparate impact on minorities is greater. Um, And you can make a moral case against... um, the minimum wage that I'm perfectly willing to make, um, but that doesn't make it racist. And so the frustrating part is, is that when liberals see policies that have disparate impacts, right, um, that the outcomes, even though there, I mean, this, this is actually where the concept of systemic racism actually comes from, and it's been completely perverted to mean overt, deliberate racism and the way we talk about it now. But the original argument about systemic racism was a perfectly legitimate argument and had some real truth to it, which was that there are arrangements of society and institutions that because of historic and generational inequities, um, uh, in sort of instantiated unfair outcomes for minorities or for blacks specifically, even though nobody in those institutions was deliberately racist. And I I have no problem conceding that that happens from time, or that certainly happened from time to time and probably still does happen from time to time. And the argument originally about systemic racism was that intent doesn't matter. The outcomes still matter. And so you can have totally fair, colorblind rules if they don't lead to the right kind of diversity. They're systemically racist and have to be changed. Now, I happen to disagree with a lot of that. And the classic example on this were the, um, auditions, I think for the Michigan symphony where they were all blind. And I don't mean like they all had seeing eye dogs. I mean that the, everybody who auditioned did it from behind a curtain so that the judges couldn't tell if you were black or white, male or female, Asian or, or, or whatever. Um, they judge you basic entirely on the sound that you produced from your instrument, and because far fewer African Americans went into classical music, uh, they had a disparate impact where they didn't have a lot of African Americans in their symphony, and they got sued, and there was a big to do, and yada yada yada. I personally don't mind colorblind standards like that. Um, I think that that that's part of you know the right kind of definition of meritocracy. I do think that you can take race and gender and all these kinds of things into account in all sorts of jobs. You know, uh, the best example of that would be policing. I just simply think it's obvious to me that um, in certain communities, having people who, you know, take just the easiest example, speak the language um, are is valuable and useful, and that you might weigh the fact that you've got a Hispanic applicant who speaks fluent Spanish um and comes from that community, you might give more weight to that fact than you did to how they did on the sergeant's exam or how they did on the obstacle course. That seems like a perfectly legitimate way to to factor in issues of diversity. But then I but I don't think that's the case for other things like, I don't know, brain surgeons. You know, I mean Ben Carson became a fantastic brain surgeon. Um you know despite all of that systemic racism stuff because he was apparently that good and um anyway this is a familiar argument but th- anyway my my real point is is that when liberals find what they believe to be evidence real or not of disparate impact or you know systemic racism They immediately move to the argument that anybody who doesn't want to adopt their reforms is racist, deliberately racist. You're countenancing racism. You're tolerating racism. You're perpetuating intergenerational racism. And yet, if I were to go out and make this argument about the minimum wage, and I brought all the data with me and I did it cogently and reasonably, and I said, you know, people who disagree with me are perpetuating racism and they are objectively racist and yada 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 liberals would look at me like I had six heads and it really is just it's an it's an annoying double standard all right so that's out of the way what else I write about this week um I'll skip the stuff I did about the the alleged Joe Biden voters remember how we were told about how how antifa were all biden voters this was donald trump jr's line it was tucker's line it was all over the place last summer um and then immediately after the inauguration uh antifa goes and attacks the democratic headquarters with signs saying we don't want biden we want revenge um and none of these people are coming forward to say um hey you know maybe maybe we were wrong calling them biden voters um but that whole thing was a direct product of the the popular front politics that you know, I've been obsessed with, obsessed with for the last couple of weeks. Um, oh, I should talk about this for just two seconds. Um, Hunter Baker, who I don't know personally, and I'm only passingly familiar with, he wrote an interesting piece, um, apologizing, uh, to quote unquote, never Trumpers. And he included me in that. And I won't get into, whole oh, am I, or am I not a never Trumper thing again? It was called When pra- Pragmatic Politics Goes Bad An Apology to the name Never Trumpers. Um, and he names me, he names David. Um, and all I said in the G file today and all I said earlier about what's going on on the right, I should have mentioned that there are people like Hunter Baker who actually have had the kind of reassessment that I think is necessary. And to, the, to whatever extent his apology is aimed at me, or however warranted it is to be aimed at me, total forgiveness, no harm, no foul water under the bridge. Good on you. That's fine. Um, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm not here to collect scalps from people who operate in good faith. Um, but, uh, you know, him calling the dispatch anti-Trump, I understand why you might say that, but that's not central to our editorial philosophy. We feel liberated for the most part, I should say we, I feel liberated. I think a lot of my colleagues feel liberated that we can get past Trump stuff now that he's gone. Um, you know, we have not suddenly lost our raison d'etre in any way. Um, but anyway, he says that I disagree with that. Then he says this thing, he says, Baker writes that the never Trumpers who never seem to stop issuing their warnings and critiques struck me as psychologically and emotionally weak with porcelain fragile sensibilities, it turns out their instincts were significantly better than my own. And then he goes on to say, "Let me see if I have this quote. Um, I don't have it. Oh yeah, he says he saw he thought that the conservatives who wouldn't vote for Trump were quote moral free riders. They wouldn't sully themselves by voting for him, but they would benefit from many of his policies." And I I think these two ideas are really kind of fascinating to me and telling about how the sort of we're from Mars, you're from Venus kind of thing emerged on the right. Um, Look, I'm, I'm not here to preen about how courageous I was, but I can definitely tell you again, knowing my own personal motivations, that it did not feel psychologically weak and porcelain fragile to behave the way I did over the last five years. Um, I can't tell you any conversations I had to have with my wife about how we might be losing money, how we might be losing this, we might be losing that, Um, you know, about how I might have to leave National Review. I eventually did, although not over this stuff, but there were times when I thought I might have to. Um, I I, I don't want to speak for David, but I'm, I'm sure he did not feel psychologically weak taking the position that he did, given how many times he had to call the authorities about death threats, um, how many times his wife, his wife was harassed and, um, and, and how many times people said the most awful things about his children. Um, it, it just didn't feel like weakness. And I think that this is one of, and I, and I'm not saying that, that, you know, look, I'm very tempted to make the argument that just getting on board the Trump train and doing what all of your friends and peers and all the incentive structure from CPAC to Fox on down, um, uh, getting on board with all of that. I'm not going to say that I didn't think that that was a sign of weakness because sometimes I really thought it was, not as a general proposition, but from specifically the people, and I got names upon names of them who agreed with me about Trump. And felt that they couldn't say it because it would jeopardize their livelihoods, or jeopardize their credibility, or their TV contracts, um, or their speaking fees, or their book contracts, and they they went with the flow, and um, and so it does get my Irish up a little bit. This insinuation, again, not from Hunter, but th- I think I congratulate him on being honest about how he saw it, but you know the constant dragging that you, I got on Twitter and on email and from whenever I showed my face at conservative things from people saying I needed to show courage and get on the Trump train. Um, it, it rankles to be told that, you know, and, and which is what they did often about how I was being weak and cowardly and feminine and, and all of these things and too delicate, um, uh, to you know, get on board. But I also think it's just sort of telling about the sort of the tribal mentality that you get. If you define the enemy as the left, or the communists, or the socialists, or the Democrats, or whatever, or just the Trump haters, however, you want to do that, if you define them as the enemy, then and that you th- and you're you've convinced yourself because really irresponsible figures like Rush Limbaugh and, uh, and Michael Anton have perpetuated the, uh, and Sean Hannity have perpetuated the idea that America is doomed unless you get on board, show courage and get on board, then you can understand why you would see people like me as like being, you know, draft dodgers in this great metaphysical structure, struggle to save America. And, and I think there are a lot of people who sincerely saw it that way. And I think they're wrong for reasons I talk about ad nauseum, but, um, I think it's really an interesting, um, sort of glimpse about how they rationalize things. Meanwhile, the way I were, you know, the way I saw things was, it was incredibly difficult to behave the way I did. And I look, and I look, I agree. Sometimes I thought it was at least funny and sometimes fun. To get this weird, strange new respect from, you know, liberals and be the house goy for talking honestly about Trump, you know, on NPR and all that kind of stuff, you know, uh, fine, I'll plead guilty to some of that, but it measuring the scales between that and, um, the prices that I, I faced that I paid or that I thought I was going to pay, um, by no means does that, you know, outweigh, do, do, are those things, do the, no way does like, you know, having someone at the Washington Post say something nice about me outweigh what I felt like I was risking after more than 20 years working at National Review and being, you know, a conservative in good standing. Um, and, uh, anyway, so it just, it's, it's an interesting insight. And so like, for me, the struggle wasn't feeling like I was going to, you know, uh, give into liberalism. It was, which I, th- I have to admit some never Trump types did, you know, and Nicole Wallace on MSNBC, the things she says, you would be amazed to know she was ever a Republican. Same thing, you know, with Steve Schmidt, and Jen Rubin, and at least Max Boot has done a bit of a, of an inventory. He hasn't just flipped a switch. Um, um, But some of that stuff gone on, but it hasn't gone on with me. And then, so anyway, the other thing I think is interesting about this is this line about how people who criticize, he saw people who criticize Trump as moral free riders because we were benefiting from policies, um, without paying the price of voting for him. And I just think there's a lot packed into there, into how one views voting. Um, you know, and I've talked about this ad nauseum as well about how I just don't think voting is magic. Um, and it doesn't, you can vote for a horrible candidate that you know is horrible and voting for him doesn't auto automatically oblige you to lie about him not being horrible anymore. And if you voted for Trump as a lesser of two evils, um, that's fine. Uh, but then going forward saying, not only was he not a lesser of two evils, he wasn't even evil. He wasn't even bad. He was someone we need to celebrate as a titan of manhood and and statesmanlike virtue. Um, that's something else entirely. And, But I guess, you know, I think it's kind of funny, and maybe this speaks ill of me. I got to think about it a little bit more, but I don't think about public policy that way either. I, you know, sure, I vote to the extent I vote, um cuz i don't vote that much cuz i live in washington dc um uh but sure i vote for the poli- for the politician i think who will deliver the policies that i want you know take trump out of it you know that's why i'm nominally a republican is because it's the more conservative of the two parties um and i do say nominally these days but um, um having grown up on the upper west side of manhattan you know, having never lived anywhere or I wasn't outnumbered nine to one, um, by, you know, politically, uh, the feeling like I actually benefit from policies one way or the other is really attenuated for me. I, you know, I, I vote for what I think is right and I support what I think is right. And I don't support what I think is wrong. And this idea that somehow, um, you know, I was part of the tribe that was sharing in the mastodon, but I did no work um, to kill it or to, to prep it or to cook it. Um, and that makes me a moral free rider because I still get my mastodon. I, I just have to, I have to tell you, like, I never, th- I've just never thought about politics in those terms for me personally, because for my entire life, the politics I actually lived under the most were largely unchangeable, um, by my voting. And, you know, and people who, you know, tend to work at places like National Review or AEI, people who grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan who are conservatives, um, their, pol- their politics are just, at least I shouldn't say speak for anybody else, but for me, they're just much more abstract. They're much more about what I think is right and wrong and what I think will help other people not me. Maybe this is a sign of my privilege, but it's just not how I think about it. And I just thought it was really, really kind of interesting. I do want to talk for a second about this magic thing. So I, I tweeted about this the other day. Um, I really hate this thing about how people talk about, you know, Donald Trump is my president or Donald Trump isn't my president. Um, or now they're saying, you know, Newt Gingrich wrote another asinine thing not long ago about how, um, he's not my president. And, um, I, I think it is just bizarre. Charlie Cook and I talked about this a little bit a few years ago, but, um, you know, we would constantly get asked, why don't you support the president? And I think Charlie, like me, I mean, he moved to Florida for taxes. I mean, he cares about public policy and how it affects his life and stuff and also because he's one of these Brits who's, um, who I think sustains himself more from photosynthesis than from food. But, and if you had that choice, particularly living in England, you, you, you would take it if you could move to Florida. Um, but, um, you know, this idea that because you voted for somebody that that means you must support them. Um, it's kind of this weird, kind of like, monarchical or aristocratic thinking. It's this kind of way of thinking that like my first allegiance must now be to the person I voted for. And that should determine how I talk or how I write or how I think. But it's, it's crazier than that. When people talk about, you know, he's not my president. Well, Joe Biden, whether you like him or not, and like, I'm not a huge fan of Joe Biden. And I expect to be doing a lot of criticism of Joe Biden over the next four years. But, um, whether or not i think he's my president he's the president and part of the reason why i hate this my president thing is um unless you work for the military or his campaign or for some part of the executive branch where you actually have to um do what he says uh it's kind of weird to talk about my president you know i mean like he, the President of the United States is not the boss of me the President of the United States is not the commander in Chief of the United States of america he's the commander in Chief of the military um he has no power to you know absent some national emergency or some weird legislation that I am unaware of. but as a general matter, the president of the United states is not cannot order me to go to bed. the President of the States cannot order me to do anything um that wouldn't have me running to the Supreme Court pretty quickly you know outside again things like pandemics, right? Or, or civil invasion and that kind of thing, national emergencies. He's just not the boss of America. He's the boss of one branch of the federal level of the government. He's not even the boss of, you know, like, like the Florida government or the the Kansas government. He's just the head of the, 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 the executive branch of the federal government, but he is the president. And so when people like Newt or like these people, you know these interviews these people who who um were not helping trump by saying we marched on the capitol because my president told me to my president asked me to do this i was just following my president um that's not something that sane people say when they understand what the constitution is about um you don't go committing crimes because your president says to do it um uh you know it it If you're the king of England in you know 1550, and the and the king says, "Go do something," you do it because you're a subject, not a citizen. You know, our rights come from God, not from government. And the, um, but this formulation that you do what my president wants, and and this was very much on the left, which has been completely memory hold. But under Obama, there was a lot of this stuff. There was that really creepy video of all those celebrities where. Um, like Demi Moore pledged to be a servant of um my president or our president or whatever it was, Barack Obama. We're not servants of freaking the president of the United States. And um, but again, he is like the president. And when you say he's not my president, you make it sound as if somehow he's got a diminution of his authority or something when he just doesn't. Jeff Bezos is not my president cause I don't work at Amazon. Um, but he is the president of Amazon and me saying he's not my president doesn't change his freedom of power within his company or within the country one iota. You know, it's sort of like saying, that's not my moon. Well, it's the moon. I don't, you know, it it, it does not care, <laughs> you know, whether you believe in it or not. And, um, this, but this, it's this kind of weird, magical thinking that runs around and it, it really creeps me out. And, uh, Mark Thiessen made a perfectly fine objection to this, my colleague from AEI, where he said, yeah, but the, it's a bad analogy with the Mark Bezos thing because, or Jeff Bezos thing, because you're not an Amazonian, but you are an American. And I take his point. And to be sure, if, um... I were in France and some politically illiterate person who wasn't following politics said, you know, who's your president now? I would say, well, you know, my president or our president is Joe Biden now, you know, because that's just, that's how it was meant. But when these, you know, these easily manipulated, you know, shock troops who stormed the Capitol said we came here because my president said so, that's not how those people mean it. That's not how Newt Gingrich means it. Um, they mean something creepier and weirder, uh, and it's it's this strange sort of sort of monarchical tribal kind of thing that has snuck into the language that is just reality defi- defying in a, in a really bizarre way to me. And um, anyway, I have more thoughts on how. I think people have, there's a lot of magical thinking in politics these days, but I'll, I I think I want to write about it. And whenever I sort of float, try balloons about what I want to write about on the podcast, I feel it kind of takes away the, the, the juice from them. You know, I, I wasn't super happy with where the, the G file turned out last week. Some people liked it. Um, but I think it could have been sharper. And I think in part it was because i had already talked about it with you and I talked about it a bit on the solo podcast and it just kind of took out the, it, 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 siphoned off the gas from, um, the internal combustion set, engine in my head. Um, oh, but one last thing about the Wednesday G file, um, uh, which I did talk about on the dispatch podcast. Um, I thought Biden's inaugural was very good. Politically speaking, I think it hit a lot of the right notes it's more importantly it hit the right tone um i just disagree with um most of my colleagues about the philosophical argument about unity in there um you know they claim you know uh, sarah and david claim that um as did um uh, moalifi on yesterday's podcast uh, they claim that the that the his talk about unity did not contradict his talk about comedy and civility and agreeing to disagree and all that kind of stuff. And um I just think that they're more intention. And if there's I mean, if there is a theme that I've written more about than the cult of unity, I don't know what it is. Um, and I could literally take another hour going through why I think uh the cult of unity is one of the most poisonous things in our politics because it taps into parts of our lizard brains about this idea of safety in numbers that is one of the things that liberal democratic capitalism has been trying to disentangle, right? It's been trying to pull apart this fusion, rea- these like fusion reaction magnets that can blow up a society where you convince everybody that you have to be all on one team um, and that all the oars have to be pulling together. And this was the main theme of my first book. Huge theme in my second book, big part of my third book. It is, it is like one of the leitmotifs of my entire writing career. Um, and if you pull the string in my back, I can talk about it for hours, but I probably shouldn't do that here. Um, I'll just leave it with the fact that I think democracy is about disagreement and that, um, you know, the things that we're supposed to unify around are very few and far between and the rest we're supposed to argue and disagree about. And, um, you know, I, you know, I keep saying how, uh, if I had liberal fascism to write over again, I'd write it differently today. Well, and one of the reasons why this is in my head and why I don't want to like, uh, leave it in the locker room here is because I've been working in my, uh, very rare free time on a big, long essay, sort of, uh, reconsidering liberal fascism and, and going over where, um, I think I got it right and got it wrong. I mean, not getting into the abstruse, um, historical stuff, um, in part because I have never seen anything that has really moved me off of the core argument of the first third half of the book. Um, but I think particularly in the wake of what we saw, um, on January 6th and what led to January 6th, um, I owe it to, you know, people who like that book. I owe it to myself. I owe it to readers um, to wrestle with what the Trump era says about that book and the argument in it. And so I'm working on something long about that. I haven't figured out where to place it. At one point I talked to the Atlantic about doing something, but we didn't quite see eye to eye about it. And for reasons that wouldn't shock anybody. Um, and maybe I'll do it for the dispatch. Maybe I'll talk to John Padoritz about it. I don't know. Um, but it's, it'll, it's definitely going to be long and um, and not for everybody, but I just feel like I have to lay down that marker, which I'm going to do at some point. Other than that, lots of exciting things are in the cards for the dispatch. Can't announce any of them now, but stay tuned. Um, we are um, really excited about sort of seizing this moment um, because we think, I'll just be honest with you, I mean, we're having these strategic meetings about whether or not we should stick to our original business plan of Sort of being very small C conservative, slow and steady wins the race. Um, you know, we we don't spend lavishly. We are sitting on nearly all the money that we raised for this thing because um, we were cash flow positive at the end of our first year, and we're you know, you know, essentially profitable now. And um, uh, we got great numbers, and we're thinking, you know, look, big chunk of the right is not having this reappraisal. It's not really having this kind of deep introspection. And we think that given how well the dispatch is done with membership and, um, all the rest that our theory about how big, um, a niche, you know, and again, we're the first people to admit it's a niche of people who are either conservative on the center, right? Libertarian, who don't want to get on board the sort of grievance train and, um, mass, you know, movement, populism, politics that is taking over so much of the right. Um, we think that there are a lot of people like that who are supportive and interested in what we're doing and that there are a lot of people who would be if they knew about us and could find us, um, and if we could reach them. But we also think and know that there are a lot of, uh, good and decent left-of-center people who actually are interested in what, you know, uh, sensible arguments from the right are, what the good conservative arguments are, are interested in legitimate, serious, fact-based reporting that is um, not caught up in partisan politics. You know, we we make no bones about sort of our, our, our ideological bent, but we're honest about it. And we present, we try to present the facts in ways that um, people can tell where we're coming from and we try to characterize the other sides of the arguments honestly and fairly. And we think, and we know, because we hear from them, that there are a lot of liberals and progressives and center-left people or whatever you want to call them who appreciate that and like that and, and, and want more of it. And we think there are more of them out there that we could reach and convert into the community as well. And we're trying to figure out ways to do that. And one of the ways, one of the easiest ways is for you guys to proselytize for us a little bit. Um, I completely understand that people got bigger things on their plates than, you know, than helping this little pirate skiff grow into a galleon and then a massive armada that bestrides the earth like a colossus. But, you know, if you can help, that would be awesome. Uh, Meanwhile, I'm almost giddy with excitement because my wife and daughter are finally coming home tomorrow, although I'm terrified about how much cleaning I have to do before they get here. And um, and I got dogs upstairs who were desperate for me to take them out. So I'll probably just end here, but I will say, if you only read the G file for the canine update or the animal update, there's a lengthy one, kind of a special one today in the G file. So maybe you should go check it out. Um, it is the Tale of Chester. And with that, I'll see you next time.